The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... As you lounge on the rocks, soaking up the July sun, you think you really couldn't be anywhere better. Sometimes, all you need is a really excellent pool. It is that simple. We review some of our favourite episodes of our sister show, Tall Stories, from 2023. From two towering structures in Tbilisi and Istanbul to the Italian architectural legacy in Eritrea. And we take to the water, twice. That's ahead in the next 30 minutes, here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. And we start today in Tbilisi, where, with a sword in one hand and a bowl of wine in the other, the mother of Georgia represents her nation's dueling personalities. At once weary of danger also offering a warm welcome to friends. But what does this monument to femininity say about the role of women in the post-Soviet state? Sally Howard brought us this tall story. At the silver feet of the mother of Kartli, a 20-metre aluminium statue that dominates the skyline of Tbilisi from Solalaki Hill, A flower seller curses tourists who attempt to photograph the spring hyacinths that decorate her stall. Nearby, a busker, a Ukrainian refugee, thrums out the strains of Hug Me or Obime, a Ukrainian ballad from 2013 that was a hit across the Caucasus back then and which has since become one of the soundtracks of the Ukraine war. Someday, war will be over, it enjoins the listener, lyrically, Someday spring will come, if you hug me, if you hug me. Kartli Deda, or the mother of Georgia, is a symbol of nationhood and womanhood in this country at the crossroads of Asia and Europe, a fertile land buffeted by centuries of invaders that has been subsumed into tens of empires, most recently the Soviet Union. In flowing dress, Kartli holds aloft a sword in her right hand and a bowl of wine, the traditional social lubricant in this country where viticulture has thrived for 8,000 years, in her left hand. Load a QR code from her base and Kartli Deda speaks to you from her rarefied perch. Welcome, my dear guests. A mother of Kartli, symbol of the Georgian national character. Yes, you aren't imagining. In one hand, I'm holding a sword against enemies. And in the other, 
I have a bowl of wine for friends. Once a tourist asked me if my hands ever got tired, I answered sincerely, yes, my hands are always tired, especially the right one. Tamar Bulbalashivi, a Georgian feminist and tour guide, preferred the original Mother Georgia statue from 1958, although she predated Tamar's three decades on this contended soil. The first statue was wooden and she wore a headscarf and looked more like a traditional Georgian peasant, 31-year-old Tamar tells me. The aluminium encased Mother Mark II arrived in 1966 when Georgian sculptor El Guja Amashukeli was commissioned by the Soviet powers to refresh this city symbol. The result, a statue the sculptor enigmatically named Capital, holds her head higher than the bowed-headed original and she wears a regal crown, although her breasts are similarly bullet-like and her agriculturalist arms are just as muscular. Just like the city she presides over, therefore, the mother of Georgia is the terrain for a proxy war between Georgians who yearn for self-rule and the powers that have always laid claim to her. Earlier this month, protests broke out on the streets she surveys, on the broad arterial thoroughfare Rustavelli Avenue and outside its neoclassical parliament building. The protests were against the enactment of a law that tries to suppress foreign businesses and charities who wish to operate in Georgia. Modelled on a similar law in Putin's Russia, the Foreign Agents Law was introduced by Arakli Garabishvili, the Georgian Prime Minister and head of the right-wing Georgian Dream Party. He's widely seen as a puppet of Vladimir Putin, and he's believed to be in league with the Russian strongman's ambitions of keeping countries of the former Soviet bloc in Russia's orbit. Tamar attended the protests on a sunny March day, and it was full of families and placard-toting young Tbilisians. This March, after three days and nights of protests, the Georgia Dream Party agreed to drop its foreign agents' bill, which is good news, as far as Tamar is concerned, for Georgia and its women. Many of the charities offering refuge to the one in four Georgian women who experience domestic violence are multinational NGOs, who would have been affected by the law, which reclass them as agents of foreign influence. The mother of Kartli presides over a Tbilisi at a feminist crossroads. The young Georgians who have migrated from their nation in recent decades have struggled to reimport liberal attitudes towards women's roles into a country where women perform 13 times more housework than men. Liberal TV journalist Kaka Kintsurashvili recently caused a national storm with his campaign Men Cares, which depicted the former actor as a smiling hands-on dad looking after his infant son. For all of the images of muscular womanhood proposed by the mother of Kartli, she still holds, Tamar notes, that bowl of wine in one of those heavy hands. When Georgians raise our wine and make a toast these troubled days, we make a toast of victory and to peace, Tamar says, as we buy a red wine ice cream from a street vendor a few steps from the statue. It's a favoured tourist snack in this wine-mad nation. I hope one day... Tamar continues, we will toast to a more modern future for Georgian women, maybe a future in which we use our swords, but a future in which we are doing much more than just smiling and serving the wine. My thanks there to Sally Howard. 
now to Turkey for another tall tale. Telecommunications infrastructure doesn't always make for the sexiest of buildings, but one tower attempting to buck that trend popped up in Istanbul in 2020, a unique design created to resemble a tulip, the symbol of the Turks during the Ottoman Empire. Hannah Lucinda Smith sent us this story of Istanbul's most interesting tower. I am standing at the very top of Istanbul, as close to the heavens as you can get. The viewing platform of the Jamnaja television tower stands 587 meters above sea level, towering over the megacity as a monument to modernity and power. On a grey afternoon, a stream of Russian and Chinese tourists and a few Turks rotate around the viewing tower, taking selfies or posing against a huge backdrop screen that shows different aspects of the tower. You can have your picture taken next to a model of it and then get it printed on a stamp. You can pay extra to enter the ground-level cinema where you watch a film that takes you flying over Istanbul. But it is all synthetic next to the real thing. I look out over Istanbul beneath me. The city is textured and three-dimensional, a moving mosaic that sprawls across cone-shaped hills rising from the green waters of the Bosphorus. Clusters of new skyscrapers sprout like fast-growing weeds amid a sprawl of dun-coloured apartment blocks. There are few green places, little open space beside the water, and in places the pollution hangs yellow. On the ground, Istanbul feels like a leveller, with its crowds, its chaos and its filth. But from here I can see how the city is divided, how behind high walls the rich are living with gardens and swimming pools, while the poor are crammed into concrete ghettos between highways. Jamnaja is the tallest television tower in Europe, capable of broadcasting on a hundred frequencies simultaneously. It's perfectly positioned on top of a hill, so that it rises before you between the two suspension towers at the end of the Bosphorus Bridge as you cross continents from Europe to Asia. From the ground to the tip of its long antenna, it reaches 369 metres in height. At night, its bulbous upper levels are lit up with the Turkish flag, and no matter where you are in Istanbul, it's never far from view. The tower dominates the view from my friend's snug rooftop terrace, three miles away on the Asian side of Istanbul. It looms on the skyline from another friend's balcony, on the European side of the city, four miles in the other direction. On the days when a thick, sultry mist descends from the Bosphorus, its antenna is still visible above, a spear poking up through the clouds. This is no rotating disc on a spoke, like the retro television towers of Prague, Berlin and Toronto. The Jamnaja Tower curves up from its base like a tan wave, with a soft symmetry that would be soothing if it weren't on a gargantuan scale. But the tower's size is the point, because bigger is better is the common principle of Turkish architecture in the era of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. the new Istanbul airport, biggest in the world, the thousand-room palace he constructed for himself in Ankara, the huge hospitals, roads and tunnels, all of them built on state borrowing. Büyük Türkiye, big Turkey, Erdogan shouts to his supporters. 
politics and ideologies leave marks on cities, none more so than in Erdogan's Istanbul. The president, a devout Muslim, is enthusiastic about mega-mosques, and over his 20 years in power, he's built them all over Turkey, in the Balkans and the Middle East. The biggest of them all is next door to the Jamlija Tower, on the next hilltop along. The Jamlija Mosque, opened in 2019, and vast enough to fit 63,000 worshippers at prayer time. The Jamlija Television Tower replaced a hodgepodge of 32 old television and radio towers on the hill where the mosque now stands. Nothing there could be higher than its minarets, six of them. Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent was the last custodian of Istanbul to do that when he commissioned the Blue Mosque in the 17th century, and he was accused of impertinence. In Erdogan's Turkey, 400 years on, it's often difficult to distinguish the sacred from the profane. Construction and religion are intertwined. State contracts are handed to loyal businessmen, and municipalities take backhanders. Religious associations have grown rich and multiplied. Erdogan's devout wife and daughters drip in designer labels. From the tower I look down on the mosque, squat and deserted below. It's easy to feel omnipotent up here, above the minarets, above the call to prayer. But nobody is immortal, not Suleiman the Magnificent and not Erdogan. One day he will no longer be leader of Turkey, but his additions to the skyline, they'll remain. A new set of trinkets bestowed by another leader determined to conquer Istanbul. Hannah Lucinda Smith there, and my thanks to her. We head now to Eritrea to find out how cities can reconcile the beauty of their buildings while their appearance is a result of some of the darker moments in history, such as colonialism and fascism. In this tall story, Isabella Jewell explored the distinctly Italian design of Asmara. A modernist monument to the plain. The Fiat Taliero service station is frozen both in time and space, with its two 15-metre wings outstretched as if poised for flights. Standing stark against the cream concrete, the tall Fiat typeface imbues this building with a distinctive Italianita. Only when you look up do you see the swirling shapes, translating Fiat into the Amharic alphabets because this most Italian of futurist monuments is actually in Asmara, Eritrea. The city of Asmara lies on a rocky plateau 2,500 metres above the Red Sea and was once the nexus of Benito Mussolini's new Roman Empire, so much so that it was known as Piccola Roma by the late 1930s. But before the Italian occupation of Eritrea in the 1880s, Asmara was just a small village, leaving the Italian architects with an almost blank canvas to experiment with radical designs and create an entirely new and Italian metropolis. The city is scattered with Italian modernist buildings of different schools, Novicento, Rationalism and Futurism. The cinemas, shops, bars and factories feature the telltale signs, abstracted neoclassical lines, columns and arches. 
In a country consistently under occupation of foreign powers, Asmara's modernist architecture was only revealed to the world again in the 1990s, after Eritrea won independence from Ethiopia following decades of fighting. But this century of brutal conflict and occupation placed Asmara in an architectural time capsule, and exploring the city feels like a journey to another era. As such, in July 2017, Asmara was made a UNESCO World Heritage Site for being an exceptional example of early modernist urbanism at the beginning of the 20th century and its application in an African context. Asmara is like a catalogue of Italian modernist styles and the Fiat Taliero is an unusual architectural example of Italian futurism, an artistic movement which rejected the past and idealised speed, technology and war. This ideology is stark in Giuseppe Patazzi's winged Fiat garage. Just months before he designed the building, Italian aeroplanes dropped chemical weapons across Ethiopia, killing tens of thousands of civilians. And that's where futurism departs from other iterations of modernism. It was an architectural style embraced by the Italian fascists, which worshipped war and the modern technology that advanced it. The Fiat garage is an albeit aesthetically pleasing nod to that brutality. Asmara is still crippled by economic and political hardship, with few tourists able to visit the city. But while many of these Italian buildings lay derelict for decades, UNESCO recognition has reinvigorated conservation efforts and funding for 14 of the city's most important historic buildings. The Italian influence still lingers on the city's streets, but it has been embraced by Eritreans living here who have adopted it into their own urban culture. Cycling is booming here, with Asmarans calling bikes bicicletti, like the Italians. And trips to the old wooden pin bowling alleys and art deco cinemas are classic weekend pastimes. Unlike futurism's fathers, Eritreans are embracing the retro and preserving the past. Isabella Jewell there. Thank you to her. Now, we're going to finish our roundup today with a couple of watery stories. In coastal locations, it might seem superfluous to add a concrete swimming structure to an already swimmable coastline. But seaside pools can elevate the experience of taking the plunge from ordinary to extraordinary. In this tall story, Jessica Bridger investigated the origins of an audacious hotel swimming pool in the south of France. Is there anything finer than diving into a perfect pool? No. Sorry, but no. I want to tell you about a pool on the Côte d'Azur. A perfectly blue pool dug out of rocks rising from the Mediterranean Sea. Its location is an insider secret, but it is fabulous enough to be featured on gigantic billboards and swim shorts for a global high-end swimwear company. It sits at the southernmost point of Provence, in the town of Gien. It is the Le Provençal Hotel Pool, built in 1962, after a 10-year battle of will by hotelier and visionary swim impresario, Marius Michel. Consider for a moment that some things can only be built at the right moment in time. Funding, restrictions, political will, or lack thereof, 
And sometimes grand visions need one visionary person. But sometimes the exceptional works out. We live with this every day in the cities around us. And as every good urbanist knows, they result in anomalies, things out of the ordinary, some of the best things in cities. A sign of a good urbanist is someone who seeks out the unusual, the spectacular. And I don't mean the checklist of star architecture or cathedrals or UNESCO designated highlights. I mean weird stuff, subventions of zoning laws, industrial relics, street paving patterns, old routes through strange cities. So, who would have ever thought that a trip around Google Maps in the Mediterranean in some serendipity would turn up the perfect pool set in the rock near Hier in Provence? But one day, there it was. I started dragging the satellite map from Italy's Amalfi up the coast toward France, looking for jetties, platforms, and other places set into the Med, ready for exploration, and I marked them as I went. I love swimming. I love sitting in the sun reading, and I love it best on structures built in the water. I'm also an urbanist, and finding unusual things is my usual way of operating. And on this Google Maps location scout, I found one really special swim and sunspot, an impossibly blue rectangle in the rocks off a long peninsula in the southern part of Provence. I marked it and forgot about it until a former Monocle colleague, Danny, a journalist and photographer, started sharing photos of a rocky pool in Provence attached to a family hotel. Could it be, I thought? Is that the pool? And indeed, as I lie on the stone and concrete deck beside it and write these words, I can confirm it was. I'd found the pin I dropped in Google Maps. The pool is simple, just seawater in a 33-meter-long, four-and-a-half-meter-wide rectangle, painted a blue that fashion had once dictated too bright, but is actually beyond even just right. It is an archetypal flyover Perfect pool blue. A special place needs special stewards. This is true at Le Provençal Hotel, now in its third generation of family management. Damien Fifit Michel now leads the enterprise, consisting of a hotel, four restaurants, and residences. He understands exactly what he has. From its true blue sides to the striped umbrellas to the very plumbing of the place, Every 48 hours, the saltwater pool is drained and refilled using a massive rust-brown pipe in the vintage system from the 1960s, simple enough that it still pumps with aplomb, filling and refilling in just about two hours. Things are also simple and down-to-earth at the hotel, a place for people who know and appreciate it for what it is. The pool is spectacular, but it is also famous as the place where many learn to swim, Every summer since it opened, there has been a dedicated swim instructor in July and August. You always remember where you learned to swim, Damien tells me. The emotion in his voice is strong. Many learned in the pool of Le Provençal. And you do, don't you? You always remember the place where you first swam. While the hotel will undergo a full renovation this year to the tune of somewhere around 10 million euro, it will stay true to its essence, rooted in place, with a bar open to locals and tourists alike. There will not be mega-suites, boring catalog furnishings, 
or the feeling that you could be anywhere from Saint-Tropez to St. Barts or Kauai. This is Provence, and Lee Provençal has provenance, and the pool will not change at all. Because the hotel and pool could not be anywhere, and certainly could never be built now, or maybe anywhere else on the Mediterranean coast. And that's a good thing. Imagine the Mediterranean coast peppered with private pools built on the rocks, choking and ruining the entire thing. Sometimes it is good that there are restrictions. Often, actually. It makes the unusual things, the amazing exceptions, that much more rare. And as you lounge on the rocks, soaking up the July sun, you think you really couldn't be anywhere better. Sometimes, all you need is a really excellent pool. It is that simple. Jessica Bridger there. Thank you. Finally today, we're in Brooklyn. City commutes can be awful things, but could taking to the water be the solution to transportation blues. Chris Chermack, a regular visitor to the city of New York, sent us this tall story about his favourite watery way of commuting to work when visiting the Big Apple. On my last few trips to New York, I've discovered not only a cheaper, but a far more interesting way to be in the city. And that's by staying across the water from Manhattan either to the west of the Hudson River in New Jersey or across the East River in Brooklyn. For example, I discovered this beautiful little peninsula in South Brooklyn called Red Hook. There's a section on the water with both a winery and a brewery, and on a Tuesday night, I found myself stunned to be just about the only one in the brewery, sitting on the water, a cider in hand, staring at the Statue of Liberty in the distance. It was so quiet, serene, so un-New York. I asked the bartender, and the reason she gave for the quiet was that it was so far away from Manhattan, around an hour or longer by subway. New Yorkers absolutely fill the place over the weekend, I can attest to that as well, but weekdays? Pretty quiet. Now, at the risk of spoiling my secluded part of South Brooklyn, I'll let you in on a little secret. The ferries. NYC ferries operate from South Brooklyn into Manhattan, and since February, they've introduced a pilot program that speeds up the commuter ferry with alternating stops. It got me from Red Hook in South Brooklyn, across the East River and to downtown Wall Street, in literally about 10 minutes. From there you can also change at Wall Street, as I did, and continue up to Midtown. For a week I took the New York ferries all the way up to East 34th Street, about 10 minutes walk from the United Nations, which was my destination. And the thing about this ferry commute is, just like that waterside bar in Red Hook, I was stunned by just how quiet it was. I took it at 6am, 7am, 9am, and each time it was like I'd stumbled upon something that only a tiny smattering of the 8 million New Yorkers knew about. Now, it should be said that not all NYC ferry routes are this quiet. As I mentioned at the outset, I've also stayed across the Hudson River in New Jersey, and I've taken the ferry from Port Imperial there to West 39th Street, also Midtown New York. From there you can even hop on a ferry bus to get across the city. It's a route that's far more popular and established among residents, even if commuting by ferry still makes you feel like a tourist every time, with stunning views of the New York skyline while you sip your morning coffee. Now the New Jersey ferry route is also more regular, 
running every 20 minutes compared to the South Brooklyn route that runs about once an hour. So you do have to plan ahead. Frankly, planning ahead is a small price to pay in my mind. But then by now you should realize that I've become a total geek and lover of commuting by ferry in a city. I first discovered them while living in London during the pandemic. I'd cycle to Westminster and take the ferry all the way to Greenwich in the east. A fabulous way to get across town and so much more freeing than taking the stuffy tube or subway. In New York, I was curious if I was really the only one, and so I looked into the numbers. NYC Ferries gets about 15,000 riders per day. That's compared to 4 million who take the New York subway daily. It's part of the reason why NYC Ferries has been expanding its routes and seat capacity this year, hoping to encourage more commuters to relieve some of the logjam in the New York subway system. In addition to the South Brooklyn route, they've also recently introduced a speedy ferry all the way to Rockaway on Long Island. The ridership figures do also confirm that the South Brooklyn route has long been the city's least popular route. But officials from NYC Ferries tell me that their little pilot program of speedier ferries there has been a success. Ridership is up by 75% on a route from Bay Ridge, that's a little further south than Red Hook and where the speedier commute shaved about 20 minutes off the travel time. That's compared to a 15% bump in ridership overall for ferries so far this year. They're now making the faster commuter ferries to South Brooklyn permanent as a result. Which is as it should be. I mean, maybe I'm crazy, but I can only recommend commuting by waterways if you can, instead of sweating it out in the subway. Talk about an improved daily quality of life. So consider supporting the ferry or pushing for expanded options in your own city, so long as not too many people listen to this podcast and discover my secret. I'd like to keep the Strong Rope Brewery in Red Hook all to myself on a Tuesday night for as long as I can. My thanks there to Chris Chermack for that tall story. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes of both The Urbanist and Tall Stories direct to you every week. The Urbanist is produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Lily and Madeleine with Hotel Pool. Thank you for listening, city lovers. We swam in the hotel pool Said, yeah, we've made it for sure It felt like some new treasure